nothing is static. And as soon as an idea becomes common, uh, common currency, you find that people immediately start tugging at its boundaries. That's almost human nature. Uh, people look for flaws. They look for the weaknesses and drawbacks, especially if it means that people suffer from the consequences of that idea. Um, and so, you know, we can't talk about the Enlightenment as a thing or one idea. Lots of people contributed it, and lots of people reacted to and with it and against it. I need to turn that on. In some ways, what I'm doing is artificial, because you can't just say, right, this is the Enlightenment worldview, because it's complex. But we need to do something, and it just gives us a sort of a foothold, if you like. So you find that people start attacking modernism pretty quickly, what you might call modernism, and, um, or the age of in, uh, reason and the Enlightenment, and not only that, from a Christian perspective, you find people attacking some of its premises immediately because actually in some ways it's identified as nothing short of idolatry. And no idol can ever produce the goods, ultimately, because an idol is a f fabrication, it is a creature, it's a thing made by human beings. And modernism and many of the Enlightenment views are idols and they come crashing down. Now, many of the people reacted, tested, challenged rattle the cages of modernism, just as people had done with pre-modernism. And a classic example is actually Karl Marx himself. I hinted at that just now. Karl Marx was an historian primarily, and he was concerned to see if he could establish patterns and um, ways of uh, understanding how history worked and how human beings over the course of history have related to one another, and one of the things that he particularly questioned was this resolute confidence and optimism that things would get better, because he very quickly realized, not least through his experiences, let alone in Paris, but also here in London, as he saw how the working classes, as it was termed, were treated and how they had to live in appalling situations. Now, he embraced many of the worldview pillars of modernism. So he, you know, he understood the world without God and so on, the centrality of the collective, the nation state working together and so on, and the need for deliverance. Uh, but he understood that actually it's one thing to get rid of the monarchy and the French Revolution. You've actually got to do something about the bourgeoisie who exploit the poor, and that is why they're rich. That is a reality. It happens. And so he asserted, even after the French Revolution, that revolution needed to continue. That's just one. Then there were the Romantics. This is not in order, but it's just uh, trying to sort of get a, a handle on things. The Romantics, well, that's a huge movement as well. And, and again, it's very difficult to sort of pin down, but you see it in poetry and literature, um, art, music, um, all kinds of uh, things. And I just jotted down one or two figures, but there are plenty of others and, and so on. But uh, I've just got a couple of pictures by Turner which I think really illustrates something of this. This is uh, the um, eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Basically, again, the, the, the slide doesn't really convey the majesty and the drama and the awe. I mean, Turner is clearly in awe of the natural world. It is a breathtaking picture. Uh, and basically, human beings are just mincemeat. And he's just evoking, he says, look, remember your place. The natural world is just awesome. And so he would paint paintings of shipwrecks with these colossal waves just churning these ships into smithereens, reminding people that human beings are not the masters of all they survey, that the world, the natural order, is still strong. 
And this is one of the most famous. Rain, steam, and speed on the Great Western Railway. It's a fantastic picture. But basically, the train is hardly there. Uh, It's a sort of almost an impression. And I use that word advisedly, although he was not an impressionist. It's almost an impression of the train. And you you just have the sense of it going back into the distance, don't you? You know it's there. But basically, what is obsessing Turner is is just the sort of the atmosphere, you know, painting the weather. How do you paint the weather? Spectacular. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, He was a a, a boy wonder. He was a genius. And he became an academician academician at the Royal Academy at the age of only 23, which is astonishing. I mean, he was recognized right from the beginning. Um, I have no idea about that. It would be good to, to check that out. I think another classic example from this period is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Now, the Kenneth Branagh movie is a flawed movie, but he is trying to capture the sort of Enlightenment era and the disaster that it leads to um, with this creation of this monster Frankenstein uh, has made. It, it illustrates what Sting sang in that song, doesn't it? That actually the project, the process, uh, the, the, the achievements of science don't lead to a blessing but a curse. I've paraphrased, I can't remember the exact words, but Frankenstein is a classic example of that. The romantics, in all their different ways, are saying, look, don't play God, as well as reveling in the natural world, you know, even if it's sort of words worth just thinking how wonderful it all is and so on. Then you have the Bohemians in a very different way. You have Oscar Wilde and the Bloomsbury set and all these guys throwing off all caution to the wind and saying, look, why should we get involved in all this sort of stuff? Let's express ourselves. Self-expression, in some ways that's an outworking of individualism, isn't it? But in some ways it's a rejection of it. We're just saying, right, we're just going to express ourselves in art and in sex and in all literature and all kinds of different things. And then you have the existentialists. Uh, For some reason, the French uh, play a large part in this journey. They keep cropping up. These guys, like Sartre and his on-and-off girlfriend, Simone de Beauvoir and Camus and others, they see the pillars of the Enlightenment and modernity for what they are, shifting sands, that they don't last. And the idea of constant progress, that is a myth. All there is is existence. Life is actually meaningless. It's even absurd. And so we just embrace the absurdity of it. And in some ways, they're absolutely right. And the hallmarks of this sort of movement are that of fear and anxiety. Nausea is a word that comes up again. Just the nausea of existence, especially about death. A very diverse movement, but a classic is Albert Camus' L'Etranger, or The Outsider, he was originally from uh, French Algeria and uh, uh, died in 1960 in France. And L'Etranger is set in Algeria. How many people have read L'Etranger or um, The Outsider? Yeah. And it, it's all to do with a guy called Merceau who kills an Arab on the beach. And uh, he is then executed for his crime. But none of it matters. It just doesn't matter whether he lives or dies. And I can't read you the whole book. It is a very powerful book. It is a terrifying book. Um, I had to read it for A-level. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you read it for exams and work and stuff, but actually it really stays with you. Uh, I can't read you the whole book, but I can play you a song by The Cure called Killing an Arab. And it came out in 1979. It was very controversial because they thought he was being, uh, The Cure was being racist. Uh, they're not. They're just telling the story of L'Etranger. The words are in the back of the media booklet on page 20. There we are. I think it's an ingenious song because it really captures the emptiness. And it's very sparse. 
um, sort of instrumentally, and oh, it's, just, it's just got it. Now, what you're finding is that the, the, the foundations of modernism are being shaken. People are seeing the flaws, and yet the confusing thing is that many of the sort of greatest achievements of modernism are getting stronger, like the nation-state, you know, the defense industry, with all its sort of incredible might and power. These things are getting stronger while the sort of philosophies and worldviews underneath them that led to them coming about are dying. So we're, becoming, we're getting into a very strange situation. And so the question will always be, can the nation-state survive if people don't have these common values and so on in the future? And, and this is why I think, particularly in the States, where perhaps the nation-state is the strongest in the West, um, you're finding people dropping out. They're saying, no, I don't want to be part of this. Now, if a sort of critical mass of people drop out, the nation-state will crumble, won't it? It cannot sustain itself. But let us just think about some of the flaws as they get exposed. You will agree with many of these things, because you'll think, yeah, of course. <laughs> but it was a while before people started pointing them out. Now, the first is that science is limited. It cannot be all-conquering, all-knowing, all-achieving. And basically, science is not as strong as you think it is. It's based on models and theories about how things we think they are, but it's... They're just models and theories some of the time. And sometimes theories get changed. Sometimes theories get thrown out. And uh, a classic book, um, which I've read a bit of, um, was called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. It came out in 62. And basically he coined and popularized the phrase paradigm shift. So you'll find people talking about paradigm shifts. In other words, all the assumptions of the way the world is are suddenly changed almost overnight by a radical new discovery or something, and suddenly the previous assumptions are no longer valid. Now, a classic example is the Copernican Revolution, where Copernicus and, and Galileo and other people said, no, the, sun, the, the, the Earth is not the center of the solar system, but the sun is. Before that point, you have plenty of scientists who were people of integrity and studying and stuff who honestly thought the Earth was at the center. But as the evidence came to light, people changed. And that just became accepted very, very quickly. There was a paradigm shift. The way we understood the world has changed. And this keeps on going. And Kuhn is saying, look, there is nothing fixed about science. Things change. Einstein, and I'm not a scientist, so I don't understand, but Einstein made massive impacts on how we understand the world through the theory of relativity and so on. And, for instance, how do you understand what light is? Light, at the one point, is sometimes seen in waves, and at another point, it's understood as particles. And you'll be people talking about light waves and light particles. And they seem, you can't have them together. They seem mutually exclusive, and yet both are models for describing the way light works. So it's not as fixed and, and, and straightforward as you might think. The world is more complex. Well, of course it's more complex. So science doesn't know everything. And actually, the objectivity of science is being criticized because... Um, there are some things that we might all agree are universal, like water boils at 100 degrees at the same sort of atmospheric uh, conditions anywhere in the world. But there are some things that actually, when you start trying to measure them, you influence them by the very fact of you measuring them. Uh, some of you might have come across Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Um, basically, this is when you start measuring things that are really, really tiny at the sort of atomic, sort of molecular level. If you try to measure something, the very act of you measuring them will have an impact on the things you're measuring. So you can never measure them unadulteratedly. Do you see what I mean? The very fact of you... It's like being an anthropologist trying to understand a tribal custom. 
the very fact of your presence trying to observe it will probably make them want to do it slightly differently. Or if you try to measure or analyze how children play, trying to find the conditions where they'll play naturally without thinking they're observed is actually quite hard because if you're in the room, they might play differently. Do you see the point? It works in all kinds of ways. So actually, can you have any certainty in what you measure at all? And then scientism, the belief that science is the answer to everything, is actually very reductionistic. In other words, it reduces everything. Someone's called it nothing buttery. In other words, a scientist will say that X is nothing but a Y. Whereas we might want to say, well, X is Y, but it's also Z. Let me give you an example. Now, what are you doing when you pull your zygomaticus major and minor, then open your lateral pterygoid, exchange immune system proteins while developing an increase in oxytocin, oxytocin, dopamine, and adrenaline. Does anyone know what you're doing? You're not breathing. You're not eating. No. You're kissing. Quite an intimate kiss, actually. (laughs) I have explained some of the basics of the sort of biological, physical of the kiss, but you can't say it's nothing but that. And actually, it doesn't tell you about the emotions involved. It doesn't tell you the context, whether it's uh, you know, um, after an argument or it's your first girlfriend or whether or not it's you're having an affair. It doesn't tell you those things because science is reductionistic. It's not trying to tell you those things. If you're studying kisses for an exam, you're not going to talk about the context, whether it's anything or another, do you see? So science is helpful, but it's not everything. A classic example, I think, is Mr. Spock in the original Star Trek, isn't he? He just cannot understand, certainly at the beginning, he can't understand human emotions because he sees everything in a very reductionistic way. Not only are people finding that science doesn't actually have all the answers and it's not as monolithic as they thought, but they're also finding that actually, particularly in the 20th century, reality kicks in and life really is terrible. Before the 20th century, there was the bloodiness of the French Revolution and that disillusioned many people, not least in England. Uh, particularly, uh, there, were, there were politicians and, and, and radicals in England who thought the French Revolution was great at the beginning and then radically changed their minds when they saw what happened. Yeah, but there was still some, some of the Enlightenment optimism about Washington and the uh, American Revolution. And uh, you know, it was said of Washington, I, can't, I think it might have been one of the, a czar of Russia or something, but said of Washington when he stood down as president. That was unheard of. Was, you know, we, we forget how remarkable that was for him at the end of his term to say, right, I'm going to walk away. No other you know, leaders did that. This is a, a man of principle here. And, and I think it was the Tsar of Russia who said he is now the most powerful man on earth. And the whole business of fixed term limits and so on. Remarkable about an optimism for the future of the state and so on. But when you get to the 20th century, you find the First World War particularly is a horrifying example of how bad things can really get. Because technology is now being used to kill as many people as possible with the slightest effort. Just the Somme statistics, that's a photograph of the Somme at the top. On the first day of the Battle of the Somme, 20,000 men were killed on one day. 40,000 were wounded. The battle lasted four and a half months, and 1.2 million people were killed on both sides uh, in total. And do you know what that destruction achieved? Five miles. That is how far the Allies advanced. Five miles at a cost of 1.2 million people. That sort of destruction cannot be achieved by bows and arrows or swords, can it? This is the application of technology to kill. And, of course, today we have missiles, submarines, and nuclear weapons. 
The combined death toll of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was 100,000 from just two bombs, without all the numbers of injured. Today, each nuclear bomb around the world has at least 1,000 times more explosive power. This painting by Mark Gertler, uh, he was an English artist. This is painted during the First World War. Basically, it's a merry-go-round. A merry-go-round is meant to be fun and a place that children play and have fun. You notice that they're all in military uniform. They're all standing bolt upright, and they're terrified. The insanity and meaninglessness of war. As time has gone on, there have been other things to make the same point. The Second World War did the same, um, and all kinds of other things. There have been modern disasters that show that, again, nature is well beyond us. Uh, the tsunami, Hurricane Tr Katrina, you name it. You know, we can build a Thames barrier all we like, but actually, how do we know that it's not going to stop the tile spring tide? Then there's the, the fact of corrupt nation states, including the very countries that are meant to uphold, uphold the Enlightenment ideals. Nixon and Watergate, Clinton sleaze, Tory and Labour sleaze. Now there's a Lib Dem donor jailed. People can't be trusted, states can't be trusted. If there's no God, where'd you go? If I lose my faith in you, I don't know what I'd do. And then there's just the fact of living. What is it like? Well, Where's the human being in all this? Where's the soul? Human beings are reduced to just cogs in the machine, aren't we? And the ultimate, this is an ultimate example from a telephone marketer. Uh, this person's experience, he was a, a former airline reservations clerk in the States. He'd been doing it for a while. And then he describes what happened when computers were introduced to their work. So he'd been on the end uh, of a phone for ages, uh, booking people's flights in the States. And then they introduced computers. This is how he describes what happened. You were allowed no more than three minutes on the telephone. You had 20 seconds busy out time, as it was called, to put the information into the computer. Then you had to be available for another phone call. It was like a production line. We adjusted to the machine. The casualness, the informality that had been there previously was no longer there. They monitored you, listened to your conversations. If you were a minute late for work, it went on your file. You took 30 minutes for lunch, not 31. If you got a break, you took 10 minutes, not 11. I was on eight tranquilizers a day. With the airline, I had no free will. I was just a part of that stupid computer. Human beings are dehumanized. There's a real sense of malaise. A sense of, this is not how it should be. I'm more than this. Science had been such a great adventure, and the technology that grew out of science is now a tool that actually enslaves those for whom it was meant to, made. Now this is in a capitalist context, not a communist context. The drive to make greater profits. But we recognize that actually both the capitalist and the communist have the same effect. Where's the soul? Well, there's a desperate desire for meaning, for community. Scientism and materialism and all the other isms might well have, have, have removed the supernatural, basically, from life. They might have declared that God is dead, but that doesn't mean they're gone. There's a massive reaction against the modernist, anti-supernatural worldview, and you might call this a return of the soul. There's a profound sense of the ghost in the machine. Now, this does not mean that everyone welcomes Christianity with open arms. People won't welcome the gospel with open arms as a result. But postmoderns will at least agree with us Christians that we cannot simply blot out the spiritual side of life. You can't. That is why there's an explosion of New Age and Eastern religions. People are fascinated by them. They're saying, look, they've trucked along for millennia. We need to try something else that's actually got a bit more pedigree than this stuff. 
In the 1990s, this is what Joanna Lumley said in an interview, about 91, I think. Joanna Lumley, she said, In the 1990s, we're going to find our souls again. We've gone through a very non-spiritual time this century. Or this is what Chris Carter, the creator of the X-Files, said in an interview. He said, I'm a non-religious person looking for a religious experience. And in some ways, X-Files is all about that, isn't it? The truth is out there. And it's about, you know, if you've seen it, it's the relationship between Fox and Mulder, the, the, the modernist scientist against the, well, the postmodern who says, no, but there's more to life. And the modernist gradually gets converted. But uh, I want to show you another example from Star Wars. This is from the very first movie, or Star Wars 4, as it's now called. I think this is a conversation between a modernist and a new ager, probably. Just have a look. Your first step into a larger world. Do you see? The modernist has contracted the world. The world is much bigger, much more complex. But he's actually quite postmodern as well because he says, actually, you can't trust everything you see with your eyes. Stretch out with your feelings, your emotions, your instincts. It's fascinating. And that will resonate with some of the things we're going to see after lunch. Dave Tomlinson, who wrote the book The Post-Evangelical, which is a a challenging book. You might not like everything in it, but uh, it's got a lot uh, of useful and very insightful things to say. And he's quite clear that postmodernism is a reality, whatever we choose to call it, and however much we dislike it. This is what he says. Those who think that postmodernism is a figment of the academic imagination, a passing intellectual fad, could not be more wrong. Postmodernism has flowed out of the musty corridors of academia into the world of popular culture. It's on the pages of youth magazines, on CD boxes, and the fashion pages of Vogue. It has abolished the old distinctions between high and low art and created new art forms out of things like music videos, urban graffiti, and computer graphics. Few things could, in fact, sum up the postmodern situation better than the term virtual reality for it is a world in which the old certainties are dissolving. But basically, what has happened is that the old certainties of modernism have gone. And I'm just left to float, in a sense. There are no answers to the big questions. Winona Ryder says, and the answer is, I have no idea. We're all aware of the problems, corruption, the environment, global warming, conflict, hopelessness. But we don't have any answers because no one has any shared meanings because we all think differently and there's no way to bring us together. We have no big story or stories that we can count on to give us a corporate answer to understand and reach out. We have no shared goal and therefore no shared purpose. What is your goal in life? Well, to have a sort of career or something. David Lyon, who's one of my heroes has uh, written this, the collapse of ideology leaves us with consumer clusters of taste and fashion. Michel Foucault, who we'll come to again later, prefer what is positive and multiple, difference over uniformity, flows over unities, mobile arrangements over systems. In other words, enjoy the fluidity. Try not to think about the beginning and the end, because you can't really know about it anyway. Just enjoy what you have. You too, in their song, Zuropa. I have no compass, and I have no map, and I have no reasons, no reasons to get back. Because the old way of doing things actually sucks. 
Donald Drew, some of you will have come across uh, linked with Libri and things. He wrote this. People today are dazzled by the last 24 hours, confused by the last 24 years, bemused by the last 24 centuries. Postmodernism is a much bigger thing than rejecting of modernism. We need to go a little deeper because actually it is all about what we know and how we know it. And the horrible jargony word for knowing stuff is epistemology. In other words, the study of how we know anything. Now, the chart you've got on the sheet illustrates, I think, what has happened. Let me just talk you through it. In the pre-modern world, which is the top row, you could read, if you could read, that is, you were probably a monk or a nun, if you could read in the pre-modern world, but if you could, you had your text, which was probably handwritten, a scroll in front of you with some beautiful calligraphy and stuff on it, but you had your text and you thought nothing about that, you just read the text. And you were being guided by the author of that text to certain realities that lay beyond the text and beyond the author. So Mark's Gospel teaches you about the cross, for instance, and you wouldn't think twice about it. The cross happened, and Mark's Gospel is telling you about what happened at the cross. Okay? So it's pretty much direct line, and you don't think about the intervening stages. You're thinking about the event at the end of it. Do you see what I mean? Now, actually, many of us instinctively read like that. Uh, many of us read newspapers like that. We assume, yes, this is talking about something at the other end, something that happened. We read the football scores. Ah, yes, 3-0, that's what happened. Do you see? So we don't even think about, necessarily, the journalist or the fact that it got printed last night or anything like that. We're thinking about the game. Do you see what I mean? So this is normal. But uh, the modernist began to question some of this. So let's take a miracle like the feeding of the 5,000. I promise you this will make sense, even though it probably seems a bit weird. Take the miracle of the 5,000. The modernist will say, well, hang on, there's no such thing as the supernatural. Miracles don't happen. Therefore, it's got to be something else. Whatever Mark is describing in the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, it's not literally a feeding of 5,000 people. It's something else, do you see? Because miracles don't happen. Therefore, it's not talking about some reality beyond it. So they begin to come up with all kinds of alternative suggestions for what's going on. They say, oh, well, people suddenly got generous and shared their food. But the author decided to describe it in such a way to make it look as though Jesus was doing a miracle, do you see? So they start saying, actually, you can go so far back as the author. You can start working out what the author intended, do you see? So you want to make Jesus look impressive, so you tell, them, tell a story about a miracle. You think, wow, it's amazing. Not because it actually happened, but because you have an agenda with writing that you want it to have happened. Do you see what I'm getting at? Is everybody with me so far? Okay. Now, everything depends, for the modernist, on your interpretation of what the author was doing. So the modernist thinks that he can read the, the author's mind. Say, oh, I know what he was doing. Um, supernatural things can't have happened. Therefore, what he was doing was inventing something to make Jesus look impressive. Do you see? They're reading the author's intent. The postmodern comes along and says, but how do you know you can do that? After all, it's hard enough to work out what somebody is saying and what their motives are, uh, for saying it are when you're just standing opposite them in a room. Isn't that why so often we have conflicts when we're relating to one another? Because I don't know what's behind why you said it. So if you're staring them in the face, looking at them in the eye, and you can't work out why they're saying something, what makes you think that you can do that for an author who's been dead for 2,000 years? And it's not spoken, it's on, it's on a text, it's on a page. You see, what makes you so sure you can understand the author's intent? It's actually quite worrying, isn't it? 
How do I know what he was thinking? Well, of course I don't know what he was thinking. He could have been thinking about picking blueberries in spring. I don't know. Uh, Has anyone seen some of the plays of Tom Stoppard? One of my favorite plays of all time is his play Arcadia. And he's exploring precisely this. Um, And part of it is to do with Lord Byron apparently going to stay as a guest at a country house. Um, And the play is set uh, in the Enlightenment era and in the present, and it flits between the two. And what Stoppard is playing at is precisely this issue, that how we interpret history is often and nearly always flawed, because they notice that um, Byron was in the guest list for a weekend house party at which there was a fire. Uh, That's the sort of story. But when we go back to the original sort of setting in the Enlightenment period, we realize that Byron never came. But the whole premise of what's going on in the modern era is a historian is doing a life of Byron or something. I can't quite remember which. He's writing a life of Byron. And, you know, he's investigating this country house because Byron stayed there. And he builds up all kinds of theories about Lord Byron. But we know that he never came because of a quirk or accident of, of events. Do you see? How do we know what's going on in the author's mind? And this is what generates the phrase, the reader is the author. Because actually, all I've got is just the text. Do you see? I've got nothing else to go on. I've just got the text. And so, basically, um, I uh, make the best of a bad job. I've no idea what the author was saying, but I can tell you what I think. So I can start making up my own interpretations. Well, not making up. They're my readings. You hear people talking about multiple readings? But actually, some postmoderns, at a more extreme level, take it even further than that because they begin to question who I am, who the reader is at all. Because actually, I might read the same text today, but I'm a different person from what I was a week ago when I read it. And we find that with the Bible, don't we? You know, a passage where one verse perhaps leaps out at us uh, last year and you underlined it in your Bible or put a sort of glow pen over it and you think, wow, that was an amazing verse. You come to that same passage again And you think, well, what was the fuss about with that one? Or something else strikes you. I'm a different person. I'm not the same person as I was. But more unsettingly still is that the postmodern says, actually, no, but it's even more fluid than that. How do I know who I am? I don't actually know. I'm actually a makeup of a multiple range of identities. Now, in a sense, that is normal to a degree, isn't it? Because how we relate to a policeman when we've parked our car in the wrong place, is going to be different to how we relate to um, someone in our home group, is going to be different to how we relate to maybe a telemarketer who rings us up wanting to sell double glazing. There's going to be different sides to us in all these different encounters, aren't there? But how do you know which is really me? And this is where the internet really comes in, doesn't it? Because actually the internet can thrive. You can thrive on the internet with lots of personalities. You can have lots of different names, you know, one site you're Cuddly Bunny, and the next site you're MJHM, the next site you're Zoo Roper, or whatever it is. And you can go into a pornographic chat room one day, the next day you can go online and send some work emails, the next day you can send some Bible study notes, and it's the same person, but you're all three different people. Virtual reality, you see. The internet is actually, in many ways, the classic expression of everything we're talking about. The democratization of knowledge, it's all out there, you've just got to find it. But there's no sort of arbitration, there's no sort of center saying this is in, this is out, it's just out there. So you can find all kinds of stuff out there. Isn't it the bane of most doctors' lives if, if you know, a doctor diagnoses X 
and someone comes back with a file of printouts from the internet. Oh, this is what I need. This is the medication I need, and I need to have my leg chopped off, and you've got to do this and everything else. Because it's all out there, and there's no way of sifting it. And I can be whoever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want. Listen to this song by Bruce Coburn. I've proven who I am so many times, the magnetic strips worn thin. Each time I was someone else and everyone was taken in. How do we know that the identity that we present to those around us is actually who we are? Because all of us, to some extent, have masks. All of us, to some extent, are hypocrites. The original word, the Greek word, means an actor. All of us get into role. And you don't see that no more than when you're in church. We all start behaving, don't we, when we go to church? We all know what it should look like, that behavior, so we start doing it. So you can find uh, people who come to church at home, they can be beating their wives or beating their husbands. I know of both going on in London. You find people come to church and the next minute they're on Monday or whatever, they're sleeping around with whoever they like. Or they're fiddling their taxes. But we come to church and we play the role. Who are we? Behind this is a whole business to do with knowledge and how we know things. Marx had a point. Marx was right when he saw the dangers of raw capitalism that exploited the masses. He was right. His conclusions were not necessarily right. Perhaps he was right to distrust the bourgeoisie. The problem is, what makes the proletariat any better? And that was the problem with the French Revolution. That showed that they weren't much better either. Isn't that precisely what communism shows? Stalin. And you'll find many postmodern thinkers actually graduated from Marxism. They started out as Marxists, but they realized that actually the foundations of Marxism don't fit anymore either. So there are many who call themselves post-Marxists. One of the most famous is Jean-Francois Lyotard, who um, died just a few years ago. His classic book, The Postmodern Condition, look at its subtitle, A Report on Knowledge. Very, very important. He dismissed or rejected the two great myths of modernity. One was liberation, the idea that there could be liberation. He said that's a myth. And the, the other one is the unity of knowledge, the fact that there can be a knowledge, a theory of everything that we can grasp. And in his book, he says this, and I quote, Who has the right to decide for society? Who is the subject whose prescriptions are norms for those they obligate? In other words, who is the one who is able to determine what is right? There's nothing to stop the aristocracy, the bourgeoisie, the working classes being any different from one another. Each time someone makes a statement of something they claim as universal truth, they are immediately oppressing someone else. So it might be the aristocracy oppressing the working classes. At the French Revolution, it was the working classes oppressing the aristocracy. We're all different. And we're all individuals with different individual contexts. And nothing, therefore, can be universally true. So postmodernism, as Lyotard once defined, he said, I define, simplifying to the extreme, I define postmodernism as incredulity towards meta-narratives. In other words, I'm not going to believe people who say that there is a big picture. That has been a thunderbolt in modern Western society, that sentence. And you'll find people in pubs and on the streets, they might not put it like that, but that's exactly what they believe. If you like Star Trek, The Next Generation, there's some clips about the Borg. 
The Borg is this sort of humanoid, vast network of, of people that have been assimilated into the Borg, and um, basically resistance is futile and all of this sort of stuff. And there's this extraordinary uh, episode where they capture a wounded Borg who cannot think of himself in anything other than part of the collective. So he says, we are Borg. Um, but in this, he comes up against individuals with personality. And they give him a name. He's actually called Hugh, which is quite fun if you go to All Souls. And I think it's a very good illustration, again, of what we were talking about with the dehumanization of modern modernity. Basically, the next generation, if Star Trek originally was about modernity, the next generation is about postmodernity, and the heroes are postmoderns. The great, you know, you don't have, you have a scientist in Mr. Spock, on uh, the next generation you have a counselor. Very interesting shift there from the scientist to the therapist. And the Borg is like this modernist humanoid construct that just wants to eat people alive and assimilate them and cannot understand why people don't want to be. And the, the, the crew are saying, no, but we're individuals. We have names. We're not designations, blah, 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 blah. But I don't have time to show you that now, which is a shame. Michel Foucault, very influential as well. He articulated things even more clearly, stated that there is no such thing as truth, rather merely a claim to power. So if you make a truth claim, you're actually trying to make, take power over somebody else. And there's a fair point when you stop to think about it. Think of British colonialism. Think of the relationship between British missionaries, gospel preachers, and colonialism, particularly in Africa. If you come to Jesus, we'll build you a hospital. Now, it might not be as crude as that. Maybe that's doing some many missionaries an injustice, but you can see why they might think that, and you can see why it's interpreted like that. Now, what has happened, therefore, is that all kinds of different oppressed groupings, whether minorities or not, have seized on this language. And you can see this everywhere. Whether or not it's blacks living under South African apartheid, or women imbibing the language of feminism, or gays and their talk of gay liberation, from sexism, ageism, racism, homophobia, to anything you like, all are finding solace in this language. Truth is about a power game. And you're trying to oppress me by saying what you say. Anyone who disagrees with a lifestyle or a choice or anything else like that is basically playing power games and trying to control or dominate. And so what this generates is a universal sense of suspicion. Suspicion is one of the key watchwords of the age. Suspicious of a truth claim that is a power claim. What is going on underneath is what people are immediately thinking. The assumption is that somehow you're trying to control me by what your truth is. Do you see? And remember this, because this will cut across every time you try to speak about Jesus. People will think you're trying a power play. That is their assumption every time you open your mouth. So what we find is what's been called a hermeneutic of suspicion. Hermeneutic is another horrible word. It basically means interpretation. So basically the interpretation is grounded in suspicion. This is how the American Christian Gene Veith puts it. The deconstructionists approach a text not to find out what it objectively means, but to unmask what it is hiding. The texts are privileged. That's a technical word there. These texts are privileged because they codify and justify the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, the imperialism, the economic oppression, the sexual repression. Take your pick, he says. That is the hidden superstructure of the culture. In other words, you read something to try and be a detective and work out what makes this person tick, and it's because he's trying to control you. Now, this creeps into the church in all kinds of ways. 
Just notice the next time you start talking about male headship in the Bible or the need for cross-cultural mission or the fact that the Bible says that a homosexual lifestyle is inappropriate for a believer. Notice what happens the next time you talk about that. You will find even amongst Christians that they will then be accused of being sexist, imperialist or homophobic. Do you see why? Because they're assuming that the reason you're saying what you say is not because you think that's what the Bible says, but because you don't like gays or Africans or women. And it's fascinating. I was just talking to someone in church just two weeks ago about Ephesians 5. I was just stating some of the views of how to interpret Ephesians 5. I wasn't even stating my position, which in some ways is neither here nor there. I was just saying these are the views. And and this person said, uh, and it was a woman, but it doesn't always have to be a woman. She said... That is a sexist view. You can't argue with that, can you? You can't ask, well, what actually is the Bible saying? Because, oh no, you can't say that because it's sexist. Now, I'm not going to get into a debate about headship here. There are all kinds of different views even in this room, and that's fine. But the point is, argue on the issues. Don't argue on my supposed motives. That's not fair. Ask my wife. She doesn't think I'm a sexist. Even when we're trying to live out headship, as we do. It's not because I'm trying to oppress her, I hope. Do you see? It's not fair. And yet that's what's going on all the time. So suspicion about motives rather than whether or not something is right or wrong. It pervades us. We get into this thinking. You'll see it everywhere. Okay, very briefly before lunch. What's it like to live in this postmodern world? Well, there's an exhilarating freedom from suspicion that comes out of suspicion. If you, you can be truly free. It doesn't have the despair of Albert Camus. It's related to that sort of existentialism, saying that this is all there is, but actually it finds liberation and joy in it. Great! There's no meaning! Fantastic! Let's get on! This is what one writer, Zygmunt Bauman, says, Postmodernity means the exhilarating freedom to pursue anything and the mind-boggling uncertainty as to what is worth pursuing and in the name of what one should pursue it. As the Sex Pistols once sang, and I won't play this to you, if nothing is true, then anything is possible. So you have a choice, and choice is the buzzword, isn't it? The choice to choose your truth. Truth is just a consumer item as much as baked beans. You buy into a lifestyle. Isn't that what's going on with so many women's and men's magazines these days? So doing tai chi or having feng shui done on your house is part of a lifestyle choice, as is going to church or going to a rock concert. Embrace the chaos. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks. Enjoy the smorgasbord of views. A smorgasbord is a huge meal with all the food laid out on the table. More than you can eat, just take your pick. Decide what you like and enjoy it. Which means that sincerity, not truth, is what matters. Listen to a Rastafarian called Zebi, who's a lapsed Catholic, has to say, about Rastafarianism. He says, it's an easy religion to fit into your everyday life. I'm comfortable with it. That's what happens, isn't it? Be sincere, tolerate others, do and believe what is comfortable. This means also that images take precedence over words. We, in some ways, have gone back to a pre-modern culture where the image was everything. That was illiterate. Our culture is sort of literate, but actually images are stronger. And so it's no surprise, isn't it, that this has happened. But it also coincides. Here again, technology fuels it because what is going on in technology? The faster developments very often are in TV, video, and uh, computer games and the internet, photography, all these things. 
and we just have to go to the high street now to buy what 10 years ago was unimaginable. Even me being able to do this presentation with video clips and stuff, even a year or two ago, I would have really struggled to do it myself. And so no wonder you can play around with the images as much as you like. And here are two classic ones, David Bowie and uh, Madonna, who have changed their persona with great regularity. They play different people, which is real. And some are deliberately trying to shock. Look at that one of Madonna on a cross. She's deliberately provoking you. Are you provoked? Because if you are, that's exactly what she wants. But here she is as the country landlady. But that's her as well, isn't it? We know that's real because she lives on this estate with Guy Ritchie. And she likes going out riding. Here is David Bowie. It's a sort of, you know, they're straight out of Casablanca, isn't it? Here's a sort of rather sort of hippie-ish 70s guy. There's Ziggy Stardust and so on. You know, he's just changing because he can and because it's fun. And why not? What's stopping you? So all in all, it's quite fun and it's not to be taken too seriously. That is the name of the age. It's always done tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? That's very postmodern because if you do it tongue-in-cheek, you're not going to offend anybody. There's Madonna on the cross and you think, that is appalling. But she's saying, I'm not doing it seriously. It's just art. Don't take it seriously. She was interviewed by um, Martin Amos, the author, and she once said in an interview, I do everything with a wink. I do everything with a wink. Don't take it seriously. Come on. We're just enjoying ourselves. We're creating. We're expressing ourselves. So perhaps one of the key differences between existentialism and postmodernism is being put like this. Uh, you know the word nihilism? In other words, nothing, everything is meaningless. Well, someone has defined postmodernism as nihilism with a smile. Nihilism with a smile. Let's enjoy it. It's pretty awful. Life is bad, but let's just enjoy it and create our own realities because that's how we're going to get through it.